near the northernmost border of Kashmir. Although it is the second highest mountain in the world, it is nevertheless the most difficult to climb because the last mile and a half consists of sheer vertical rock with sub-zero winds that are ferocious. It's a mountain that has had such a history of disasters that nobody tries to climb it anymore and this is why I decided to attempt it. Now the conventional approach would be to hire seasoned professional climbers sponsored by a sporting club or adventure magazine or National Geographic, the purpose being to conquer the unassailable for the sheer giddy triumph of achieving the act and take photographs, plant a flag, install a plaque. But I decided I'd be going with my friend Aaron, who's a CPA and with an eclectic group of people consisting of a proctologist, an existential philosopher, an expert in Near Eastern affairs, a purchasing agent from a small Midwestern manufacturing concern, the principal bassoonist of the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra, and a second circuit judge from the state of New York, among others. No one had any mountain climbing experience, and this was very important. Now, in a conventional ascent, you're supposed to bring ropes and pulleys and crampons and hammers and mallets and cleats and tents and oxygen masks and highly sophisticated radio equipment, including GPS, which is a global positioning system which permits climbers the use of stationary satellites to coordinate their exact position by latitude and longitude, and you map out the ascent to the last detail and determine the kinds of food and medicines you'll need and everyone is trained in first aid and in CPR, in on-site trauma treatment in case of accident, in setting of broken bones, in the application of tourniquets and compresses, even in minor surgery like stitching an open wound, cauterizing a pulsing artery. And before the ascent, you all exercise vigorously to get in shape and take a regimen of powerful vitamins, amino acids, neurotransmitters, endorphins. But we decided that this kind of behavior was beneath us. We were going to ascend the mountain in our own unique fashion. First of all, we decided not to consult any maps of K2. After all, the, the last thing you want in life is a map because you see only what someone has seen before you. People are forced to use all kinds of maps to make their way in life. We're all hemmed in by maps. Too often our lives are mapped out for us. Codes, rules, regulations, precedents, preconceived notions of right and wrong pile up until by the time you're an adult, you're just drowning in the formulas of other people's lives. So, no maps for us. We also decided to be utterly out of condition, to take up smoking, to eat a high-fat, low-carbohydrate, no-fiber diet, and to drink a lot of whiskey, single malt scotches, gin, vodka, bourbon, and sweet liqueurs. And as far as being outfitted for the climb, none of those fancy thermal outfits and goggles for us. No, we'd climb the mountain in shorts, bathroom thongs, and open-necked sports shirts. We were going to ascend K2 in a way it had never before been conquered. The style, the manner, the look, 
the execution, the quality of the experience would be so dramatically different as to be almost not like climbing a mountain at all, but would be an act of literary, poetic, and sociopathic trailblazing. It would make for us an anti-place in the non-history of the so-called sport of mountain climbing. And the equipment we decided to bring with us consisted of a microwave oven, a hair dryer, a pottery kick wheel, a dishwasher, some floor lamps, a bubble jet color laser printer, hair tonic, fly casting equipment, a barbecue grill with a chef's hat, mallard duck decoys. So that was all the equipment we were going to take up the side of the mountain with us, with the exception of one more item, a huge crucifix because I thought it would be a good shape to introduce at high altitudes. I was just pleased with the concept of dragging an enormous cross up K2. It was appealing, it had a certain resonance for me, and I thought it should be extremely heavy, made of teak, and studded with nails. And we decided that everyone had to wear a Mardi Gras mask, because it's fun to wear masks when you're taking a long trip, it serves to pass the time, and we also hired a marching band to accompany us with drum majorettes, a parade marshal. The advantage of having a marching band when you're going up a steep climb is that it gives you a beat to which you can set your pace. It buoys your spirit. There's nothing like marching band music to maintain the morale of the group. It energizes you, and the drum majorettes add a certain flair and excitement, wearing their short, pleated skirts their polyvinyl chloride white 1960 style boots, their tank tops and visored caps. Now, the initial problem you confront with K2 is simply getting there. First, you have to cross a huge salt lake by the Afghani highlands near the city of Balkh. And we made the voyage in an old World War I vintage African Queen river boat with no engine entirely wind-powered. And in order to make the trip even more challenging, halfway across the lake, we agreed to get dead drunk, take LSD, and then pour kerosene all over the decks and set fire to the boat to see what would happen. We wanted to set up challenges, challenges that people in other situations might find insurmountable. We were going to create them in order to intensify the metaphor of our journey. And so we had a prodigiously psychedelic experience, which was transcendental, intense, brilliant, insightful, profound. A passage beyond death where deceased family members, departed statesmen, deities, talking fish, animated weather fronts would carry on lively conversations with us and with each other. And the lake turned into the great boiling open mouth of a huge soprano. And later, when we woke up, we were cast on the opposite shore, our clothes shredded, our bodies battered, bruised, some of us impaled on tree branches, others with voracious fish clamped onto their arms and legs. One man was fornicating with an octopus. And those who didn't make it were forever enshrined in the memories and internal histories of those who carried on the standard of the expedition. And the LSD had 
an interesting effect on us. What happened is that the boundaries between individuals became porous, and personalities were now flowing across borders, so that the individuation of each member of the expedition was becoming less well-defined. We were all flowing into one entity, a single being that consisted not of individual members of an ascent team, but of one great, uniformly unicellular being, one organism. Without an ego, you felt you were part of the larger scheme of things, and you experienced an exhilarating sense of oneness with the universe. Without ego, there is no angst, no jealousy, no self-hatred, no self-doubt, no longing, no regret, no sense of loss, no wish to gain, no greed, no striving, no ambition. We have everything that the Buddha rejected. But then there was this nagging doubt about who you were, and this sense that you were suffering from amnesia, and so you desperately wanted to find your way back to yourself, to your storehouse of memories, to the compass that pointed towards your individuality. The set of coordinates unique to yourself, the crossing of the longitude and latitude lines that defined who you were, that place on the map called home, that had your name on it, that was the most familiar place in the world. So, sitting around that fire, moving back and forth from oneness with the universe to our own personal lives, was a very strange and unique experience. Because your sense of yourself and your place in the universe kept shifting, with the ever-changing tides of consciousness that was the hallmark of the experience. But finally, the LSD wore off, and then we began the second leg of our journey—a 150-mile stretch of road made of red clay, which, when baked in the sun, produced a choking cloud of airborne dust. Stirred by hot winds, the roadside was alive with scorpions and venomous desert snakes, and there was an occasional orange stand that sold watermelons, tangerine slices, cold beer, and cigarettes. And once we passed a pair of elderly men engaged in a silent slow-motion chess game, an hourglass on the table before them. And at their feet, there was a bird cage containing a dwarf, who was gripping the bars in his fingers, sullenly staring at us, and urinating into a small pan at the bottom of the cage, which was filled with shredded paper. After this, we had to forge a huge whitewater river. So we strung a rope across and tied it to two trees on opposite sides of the river, and we individually tried to make it across. And、the river, being in a valley, was whipped white with powerful gusts of wind that descended off the sides of the mountains. The water raced by as though drawn by some irresistible force. And in the turbulent, raging river below, we saw overturned boats, the remnants of bridges that had been swept away, huge advertising billboards, satellite dishes. And what appeared to be the smokestack of an ocean liner, and some of our members were 
blown from the bridge into the water and dashed against the rocks that formed the course through which the river ran. And so we lost a few drum majorettes and the tuba player was swept away screaming, grasping ineffectually at the moss-slick boulders. So we barely got to the other side and held a small service for those who didn't make it. We lit incense, roasted a chicken, had the marching band play Nearer My God to Thee and Amazing Grace. And we carved the names of the deceased into the wooden sides of a miniature cathedral we'd built and then we set the cathedral afire so that the smoke would reach the heavenly precincts and remain forever part of the Earth's atmosphere. And then we moved on to what appeared to be an impenetrable jungle, alive with carnivorous plants which at night would send poisonous shoots and tendrils down to strangle you and insert sucker buds through your skin and into your muscles and begin to drain the blood and fluid from your body. And we were there on purpose during the monsoon season because we were trying to make the trek as difficult and memorable and challenging as possible. And so we were deluged for 45 days with continual rain. And nothing could be kept dry, so food would rot and there were digestive disorders and lots of diarrhea and people were suffering from dehydration. And we celebrated this because it was the most awful, the most horrendous, the most punishing experience of our lives. And by virtue of that, we felt triumphant. We next had to pass through a decayed third world urban landscape with burnt out buildings and smoldering wrecks of automobiles and bands of drunken teenage boys driving armored personnel carriers through the streets, firing recoilless rifles and gangs run by local warlords with rocket-propelled grenade launchers and AK-47s. And there were huge crowds of refugees carrying all their worldly belongings in shopping carts and in pillowcases, women with baskets on their heads. And there were prostitutes and maimed beggars and naked children playing in polluted pools of filthy water and old men with begging bowls. And the gangs of the different warlords would demand tribute. And we gave them all of our belongings. And the squalor was breathtaking, exquisite, pandemic, universal, overwhelming. And we were exhilarated by the pain and suffering that we saw. Every time we were robbed, we felt a sense of, yes, this is what it's about. This is life. This is the real thing. This is not like the life we led back in the United States, that bourgeois, boring, predictable, coddled, pampered existence. Even when members of our party were summarily executed or shot down by drunken soldiers, we felt that our purpose was achieved. These were the richest experiences. We knew that when these things happened, that we would never forget them. This would be the high point of our lives. And when one of our comrades was taken blindfolded, hung upside down from a tree, beaten with rubber truncheons, shot and then set aflame, we thought, it doesn't get any better than this. We felt as if we were on a euphoric drug, our hearts full, our souls as though for the first time alive.
By the time we made it to the base of K2, most of us were so ill and so exhausted that we could hardly stand up. So we never made the attempt to climb it. And I found it very interesting and quite compelling that the entire enterprise had involved exclusively getting to the mountain, but not actually climbing it. And from this, we inferred that the lesson to be learned might be that the actual doing of something is not as important as preparing to do it. So the act itself is really unnecessary. It really has no meaning. It's an afterthought. What really matters is approaching the challenge. To then actually engage the experience is really a waste of your time when you could be spending that time facing new risks. In other words, once we had finally arrived at the mountain, climbing it became irrelevant because we had already, in a sense, climbed it through the difficulty and obstacles and suffering we'd experienced. We had already become it. We knew it. We'd experienced it. And so we considered the expedition a success and we meet every year on that date and throw a big party at which we show slides and tell stories about everything we did leading up to the climb that we never made. And in retrospect, I think we all agree that it was one of the most gratifying and fulfilling experiences of our lives. Because we considered the event an ascent, albeit a horizontal ascent. Horizontal or vertical, it didn't really matter. That seemed a minor distinction. And we're still angry that the Academy did not accept our claim that we actually reached the top of K2. Because we felt that we had ascended it without actually ascending it. We had ascended it in the sense that we had risen above the concept of ascension.